You can find the New Testament in almost every language on earth. There are apps with the New Testament and children's books. It's the most read book and also the most banned book. In places around the world, Christians huddle in secret meetings, reading over the New Testament in secret. There's even a story of Corrie ten Boom, who was given the chance to speak in Russia about her time in the concentration camps in Germany. When she realized her hotel room was bugged, she sat down next to the microphone and read the New Testament into the speaker. She was being recorded and that recording was passed around the communist government for years. But that's a story for much later on. Today we're talking about 15 years into the life of the church. On today's episode, we talk about how the New Testament was written. Right now, we are just 15 years into the life of the church. Already, the church has grown and spread around the Roman Empire and into Africa. But not even one book of the New Testament has been written. While today we look to the New Testament as our guide for the church, we have to remember two things. One, the very early church did not even have the New Testament. They found the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, woven throughout the Old Testament. Second, the history of what was happening while the New Testament was being written can change the way we view the New Testament. When we were starting in Jerusalem, Paul and Barnabas traveled together to Jerusalem to help the church that was there. As they traveled, they visited churches along the way, and the people in the churches gave money to Paul and Barnabas to pass on to the church in Jerusalem. When Paul and Barnabas arrive in Jerusalem, they come with money food, and gifts for the church. The church in Jerusalem is not hungry through the famine. During this time, people come up with a name for those people who are part of the church, Christians or Little Christs. It was probably meant to be an insult, but the name was accepted by the church and Christians were proud of being Little Christs and they did their best to live up to the name. The year is 46. It's been 16 years since Jesus ascended into heaven. The church is spread out, but what is the church? How is the church supposed to live? James, the brother of Jesus Christ, has become a leader in the church movement. He's been a leader for about two years, and it's evident that church members need a how-to book for the life as a follower of Jesus. So James sits down and writes a book. The first book of the New Testament is written, the book of James. It is notable that James says he's a servant of Jesus Christ. He doesn't say he's the brother of Jesus. Imagine growing up as the brother of Jesus. We know that James did not like his brother very much. And if anyone has grown up in the shadow of an older sibling that seems perfect, imagine growing up in the shadow of a brother that was perfect. But after the death and resurrection, James sees that Jesus truly is God and becomes not just a follower of Jesus, but a servant of Jesus. The book of James is circulated amongst all the churches to read. So far, every Christian was Jewish. There are still tensions between the Greek Jews and the Hebrew Jews. Racial tensions were high at this point in history, not just amongst the Jewish community, which at this point all the Christians were part of, but also amongst the Romans. 
There were Romans who had heard about the God of the Jews and believed. They fell into two camps. Some converted to Judaism. There was a pretty big step with some serious commitment if you were a Gentile man converting. It meant you had to be circumcised. The second group was called God-fearing. They believed the God of the Jews and they worshipped the God of the Jews, but they didn't convert, as in they hadn't been circumcised. One of these God-fearing Gentiles was named Cornelius. Cornelius lived in the city of Caesarea and he was a Roman centurion. Not an easy job, especially in these hard times. Roman centurions oversaw crucifixions and whippings. Death was a constant part of the job. This would have been difficult for Cornelius, who believed in the God of the Jews. He prayed every day. He gave money to the poor whenever he could. He loved his family, and he wanted more than anything to please God. One day, as Cornelius was praying, an angel appeared to him. Send men to Joppa, to the house of Simon the Tanner, and ask for Simon Peter. Ask Simon Peter to come with him to Caesarea to speak to you. The angel left, and Cornelius immediately sent two of his servants to go on a very long 31-mile journey. He then began inviting his family and his friends to his home so everyone could hear what Simon Peter had to say. It's late in the afternoon, and Peter is waiting for his food to be prepared. I'm going to the roof to spend time in prayer. Once the food is prepared, come and let me know. I'll come down to eat. Peter heads up to the roof to pray, but his mind is on the meal being prepared and he can smell the great food. As he begins to pray, he suddenly sees a vision. A great sheet is lowered down from the heavens with all kinds of animals, pigs, reptiles, birds. And a voice says, eat, Peter. Peter, thinking this is some kind of a test, spurred on perhaps by his hunger pain, says, no, I will not eat what is unclean. I'm an old man. I've never eaten unclean food, and I never will. Pass the test. Except it wasn't a test. The voice says again, eat. Peter repeats his claim. Then the voice says, what God has made clean, do not call unclean. This same thing happens three times. Peter is very confused. Then a friend appears on the roof. His friend does not see the vision or hear the voice, and he isn't there to say food is ready. There's visitors at the door, and they've asked to see Peter. Peter heads down and meets Cornelius' servants, and Peter suddenly realizes his vision must have something to do with this. So he agrees to go with the servants on the long trip back to Cornelius' house. By the time they arrive, the house is full of guests. Cornelius and his family try to worship Peter, who stops them, and then tells them the good news of Jesus Christ. In what can only be described as the first Pentecost for the Gentiles, the Holy Spirit falls on the household, and as they believe, they also start speaking in tongues and praising God. Peter watches in awe. He's seeing exactly what happened to him and those first few members of the church. Could it be? Could God be giving the Holy Spirit to Gentiles? This might change everything. It does change everything. And while it is Peter who is the first one to bring the gospel to the Gentiles, it is Paul who God uses to preach and start churches in the, gospel, in the Gentile community. 
Peter, on the other hand, continues to preach to the Jews. And here is where the problems start. The Jewish Christians see the Gentile Christians as second-class Christians. Some won't eat with them. Others say they have to convert to Judaism. It's not good enough to be a God-fearing. You must convert. So the church elders got together to discuss, and it got heated. Many of the Christian Jews were the Jewish people who had been following the Jewish laws intently waiting for the Messiah. They were God-fearing, God-loving Jews who were Christians. The thought that these laws didn't need to be followed anymore was unthinkable. Remember, at this point, all the words of God that they have are the Old Testament. Even Peter at first sides with the Jewish Christians. Paul, who's been working with the Gentiles, speaks and says the Gentiles do not need to follow the law. The law was to point us to Jesus, that Gentiles only need to be saved by faith, not works. Peter then stands and addresses the crowd. Because Peter is the main preacher for the Jewish people, what he says means a lot. So the crowd is quiet and hears him speak. Peter tells the story of Cornelius and what he has seen. Men, I can testify that these Gentiles received the Holy Spirit not by following the law, but as soon as they believed. It was faith and faith alone. There was a mumbling in the crowd. What does this mean? Does this mean that Jewish Christians will follow the law and that Gentile Christians will not? James then stands to speak. Everyone turns to hear what he has to say. At this point, it is his book, the only book, the book of James, that the church has to look for for instructions on life as a Christian. The book of James is clearly written to Jewish people. What the, be- what the Jewish people know about the Torah is that the Torah has three main principles. All of the law can be wrapped up on the three principles found in Leviticus 17 and 18. Each of the Jewish men standing in their room that day had been taught these three principles as children while they were learning Leviticus. James says, I believe the Gentile Christians do not need to follow the law, except on these three points. They must not worship any other gods. They must not have any sexual perversions. And they must not eat any animal that is strangled. And so the council in Jerusalem, it is established. The Gentile Christians will not be circumcised. And they will not have to convert to Judaism. But they will worship only one God. And they will have no sexual perversions. And they will not eat animals that have been strangled to death. I'm sure that was a relief to the Gentile Christian men who were in the meeting. One year later, Paul writes a letter, the first of many that will shape the world. Paul has started a church in Thessalonia, and he sent his young friend Timothy to visit the church and see how they're doing. Timothy returned with a very long list of questions that the church had. So Paul wrote a letter to answer all the questions. It's known today as 1 Thessalonians. But by the time his letter had reached the church to answer their questions, something else had happened. The church had started teaching false doctrine about the second coming of Christ. So a year after 1 Thessalonians was written, 2 Thessalonians was written. In the year 52, Paul hears that the church in Galatia was preaching that the Jewish law had to be followed for salvation, that it was both grace and the act of following the law that gave us salvation. So Paul wrote a letter to the Galatians. That same year, Paul started a church in Corinth. 
Acts chapter 8, verse 2 says, Then he met a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, who had been recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius had ordered all Jews to leave Rome. The year was 54, Claudius decided to kick all the Jewish people out of Rome. They had grown in number in Rome. They were forced to leave the city of Rome. This literally divided the church, separating the Jewish church and the Roman church, as the Jewish church members were forced to leave. That same year, a man named Nero came to power. He would go down in history as one of the most vile people to ever live. Nero had been adopted by his great-uncle Claudius, and that is how he became heir to the throne. Claudius died, and most historians believe Nero's mother had something to do with his death. His mother, Agrippa the Younger, wanted to rule, and having her younger son as a ruler made it possible for her to rule. Everything she told Nero to do, he did. He was the leader of Rome, and therefore the most powerful person in the world at the time. During this time, Nero, under the influence of his mother, made peace treaties. Then the Queen of Britain led an uprising against Rome. Nero's army crushed that. Now, Nero's main goal was actually to be an actor. He loved to sing and act and play instruments. He held grand parties and had theaters built. He also began promoting athletic games and even participated in the games. The year is 56. There is racial unrest, political unrest, sexual unrest. For people who say the book written 2,000 years ago can't be relevant today, haven't spent much time studying this time period in history. On top of all the fighting was the sexual tensions that we haven't talked about yet. According to historian Craig Turner, the practice of homosexuality in the Roman Empire had increased during the early years until the Romans accepted and adopted The love of boys. Only if the boy was a slave, the Romans eventually extended their tolerance of homosexual acts to adult men, and eventually both free and slave. Same-sex marriage, once unthinkable, was not far behind. According to another historian, Nero would often engage in homosexual acts with slave boys and free men. There was also sexual activities that took place in the parts of worship of other gods, and prostitution was rampant. It was in the middle of all of this that the church was trying to figure out how to live. At this time, Paul received a very discouraging letter from the family of Chloe. In this letter, he heard that the church in Corinth was fighting amongst themselves, and they were embracing these sexual perversions. They were taking each other to court, and they were allowing people who participated in sexual perversions to stay in the church. There was also fights breaking out and church splits over who they were following. Shortly after this letter arrived, a second letter arrived from Stephanus with a question about how people in the church should act if they're not married and how marriage should work and what an actual church gathering is supposed to look like. So Paul wrote a letter to respond to both of these letters, and it became known as 1 Corinthians. The church did as Paul commanded. They disciplined the members of the church who were refusing to stop their sexual sin. But men began to try and convince the church that Paul was a fraud. 
They said he was walking in the flesh, that he was mean-spirited, that he was hurtful in how he handled other people, that he was defrauding others of money and sending letters to the churches as a way of controlling the church. They painted Paul as a power-hungry, rude man who was just in it for the money. So Paul wrote a second letter to address this. It became known as 2 Corinthians. Now the year is 59. Nero has killed his mother. He would continue the rest of his reign as a psychotic dictator. A year later, Paul is arrested and put into house arrest in Jerusalem. In 62, from prison, Paul writes a letter to the church in Philippi. In this letter, he talks about joy, how happy he is even in prison. He has so much joy. This letter is circulated amongst all the churches and brings great encouragement. That same year, Paul writes a letter to the Colossians. In this letter, he reminds them that Jesus is the head of the church. No man is the head, only Jesus Christ, and that we are the body of Jesus Christ. While in prison, Paul meets a prisoner named Onesimus. Now, Onesimus was a runaway slave who had also stolen from his master. Paul shares the good news of Jesus and Onesimus becomes a Christian. Now he knows as a Christian he must return what is owed to his master. As Paul is talking to him, he realizes that he knows his master and that his master is a Christian. His name is Philemon. Now before we go any farther, we need to make sure we have an accurate picture of slavery at this time. When we hear the word slave today, we immediately think of the slave trade and how the black people were taken as slaves to the West and forced into slavery and how they were owned by people. This is not what we're talking about during this time period, although some of that type of slavery did exist at this time as well. What we're most likely talking about in this situation is a slavery that would happen when you owed somebody money and you were unable to repay it. You would become a slave to that person until your debt was paid off. And according to Jewish law, that could not be more than seven years. So more than likely, this man, Onesimus, owed Philemon money, couldn't repay it, and became a slave. But instead of working to pay off his debt, he ran away and in the meantime, stole something from Philemon. So when Paul writes this letter to Philemon and asks him to forgive Onesimus and to treat him as a brother in Christ, it's not about saying that slavery is okay. We have to understand that. We're going to talk more about slavery in some future episodes coming later. Paul, sitting in prison, wrote a letter that was to be circulated amongst all the churches in Asia, which is the part of the world that today we call Turkey. This letter would go first to the church in Ephesus. This was the center of his evangelism in the area of Turkey. Ephesus was the capital of the Roman provinces. All the other provinces came to Ephesus to trade. This made Ephesus the perfect place to send a letter that was to be circulated to all the churches in that area. In the center of Ephesus was the famous temple to the goddess Diana. Paul had many run-ins with these people who built idols for Diana and the temple workers. The people had been turning away from Diana and following the one true God. The temple workers and the idol makers had lost a lot of revenue. The Jews in Ephesus had not become Christians, or at least not very many had. However, so many Gentiles had converted to Christianity. Paul had lived and worked in this church for three years. 
In this letter, Paul explains the central teachings of the gospel and salvation. He also explained how the church needs to function as a family, each one doing the gift God has given him. At this time, Barnabas' cousin wrote a book called The Gospel According to Mark. Mark worked for Peter as an interpreter, and as he traveled with Peter, he began to write down the stories he told about his time with Jesus. Mark was his Roman name. His Jewish name was John. He's actually a character in the gospel. When Jesus is arrested and all the disciples flee, we hear briefly of a young man wearing cloth at Jesus' trial. Most people believe this was John Mark. John Mark had traveled with Paul and Peter and knew them very well. At the beginning of the Christian faith, he was very arrogant. He saw himself as important and perhaps even more important than the others, and definitely too dignified for some aspects of missionary life. Because of this, Paul had refused to allow him to travel on the mission trips with him anymore. And in fact, the argument over John Mark had made Paul and Barnabas even have a fight. However, as Mark grew as a Christian, he also grew to be more humble. And by this point, Paul saw Mark as someone who was very much a benefit to God's work. Mark wrote the story of Jesus and showed how Jesus was a servant. In the Gospel of Mark, we see how Jesus is a servant, how he calls his followers to be servants. And we can see how this particular part of the Gospel had impacted Mark's life and humbled him. Around the same time, a doctor named Luke was living in Philippi. He'd become a Christian through the teachings of Paul. Luke put all these stories of Jesus that he heard into a book called The Gospel, and it is known today as The Gospel According to Luke. Sometimes we shorten it to just simply Luke. In Luke, we read the story of Jesus and the humbling aspects of how Jesus, who is God, humbled himself to be a man. Because of Luke's knowledge as a physician, he writes the miracles of Jesus in a very compelling way. The crucifixion and resurrection story is also very compelling as Luke had knowledge of how the body reacted to what death was like during the crucifixion. Shortly after the gospel according to Luke is circulated, Paul is released from prison and writes a letter to his friend Timothy. In this letter, Paul talks more about how to act when we're in the house of God. At this point, it's been 32 years since Jesus' ascension. So there are men and women in their early 30s who were born inside the church, and Timothy is one of these men, raised by a Christian mother and grandmother. In the letter to Timothy, Paul writes about how to treat and educate this generation, the first generation born inside the church. The church was growing and spreading, and then came the year 64 AD. In the slum area of the South District on Palestine Hill, a fire is started. The houses were built close together and made of material that easily burned. Almost immediately, the fire spread to the entire slum. Soon the wind picked up and the fire spread quickly. All across Rome, the fire devoured home after home. Three districts were completely burned to the ground, and 10 of the 14 districts were gutted. Hundreds of people were killed, their bodies never found. Thousands were left with no homes. There's a legend that says Nero played his fiddle while the fire burned. 
This is actually false. The fiddle had not been invented at this point in history. And most historians believe Nero was actually about 35 miles away at the time of the fire. However, Nero had talked often about wishing he could just burn Rome to the ground and rebuild it because he thought it was ugly. And many people believe that Nero had ordered the burning. This is a mystery the historians do not know the answer to. Was it simply a house that caused, caught fire during a windstorm? Or did Nero actually call for it to be burned? The people at the time were angry and Nero could see the anger was pointed at him. He wanted the anger to be put on someone else, so he publicly blamed the Christian. The area where a lot of Christians lived was one of the four areas that was not destroyed or hardly even touched by the fire. So people were quick to accept that the Christians must have started the fire. Nero, who loved theater, built a park with a stage as one of his first building projects. His plays were reenactments of Roman legends. However, he began using Christians as his props. Vatican Hill was the place of this park and theater. Christian men were covered with the skins of bears and then fed alive to wild dogs as part of the play about the death of a legendary hunter who was killed by his dogs. Women were tortured and killed in a play about a mythological character and another play about a criminal. All three of these plays ended with the crucifixion of Christ, and Christ would be played by a Christian, and that Christian would then die by crucifixion. Many of the Christians felt they were unworthy to play this role, and they would not beg for their lives, but they would rather beg to be crucified upside down because they said they were not worthy to play the part of Christ. Nero also had garden parties and games, and he would burn Christians alive as a way to give light to these parties and these games. It was a brutal time for the church. During this time, a man named Florus became the Roman representative of Judah. His appointment was given as a gift to Florus' wife. Florus' wife was Cleopatra, and she was good friends with a woman named Papea who was married to Nero. Now at this time, Rome was extremely corrupt. This corruption of the government could be seen in Florus, who was not qualified to work with the Jewish people and suddenly got the job representing Rome in Judea. And it didn't start off well. There were disputes between the Greeks and the Jews. The representatives before had always sided with the Jews since it was Judea and the home of the Jewish people but Florus sided with the Greeks. Then he did something even worse. He demanded money from the temple. He went to the temple and he took the money. Now the Jews had given money to the temple, but it was supposed to be used to help the poor or to pay for temple costs. It was not to be given to the government. The Jews were outraged and a large crowd began to protest. Florus sent soldiers into the crowd and arrested every single protester and had them publicly crucified. The streets were lined with crosses, men screaming, the smell of blood, people hiding in their homes. The high priest was inside the temple. The men dying painfully and publicly on the streets were men who were standing up for the temple. He had to do something. All people living under Roman control had to, by law, worship the empire. Now, the Jews had gotten a pass as long as they promised to do two sacrifices a day in the temple in honor of the empire. 
the high priest makes a declaration. The priest will no longer sacrifice in honor of the empire. Flora sees this as an outright attack and is flown into an even larger fit of rage. 60,000 soldiers are sent to Jerusalem, but the zealots are waiting for them. In what can only be compared to the Maccabees fight, the Jewish zealots fight and kill 5,000 soldiers and are able to capture and take all of their supplies. Other soldiers then surrender to the zealots, who promise them a safe passage. But once the supplies have been taken, the zealots turn on the soldiers and kill them, even though they are unarmed at this point. A Jewish government is then set up to rule over Jerusalem. Josephus is put in charge. At this point, Nero realizes Florus has lost all control of the situation and sends in a man named Vespian and his son Titus to deal with the problem. They fight and the revolutionary government surrenders. Josephus is taken captive, but he's not killed. He ends up working for the Roman government as a historian and his writings are what we are using today to know what happened during this time period. The year is now AD 67 and Paul is imprisoned again. Around this time, Luke writes a part two to his book, The Gospel According to Luke. He writes this book showing how the church is spread, and he calls it the Acts of the Apostles. We know it as Acts. And the book ends with Paul in prison. Paul understood he would die soon. Rome was killing Christians, and as soon as he was arrested, he knew he would be killed. His mind went to his friend Timothy. Paul had left Timothy in charge of the church in Ephesus. This was the largest and most important church because it was the capital and the trade hub. The church was spreading out through Ephesus and also looking to Ephesus for guidance. Leaving a very young Timothy in charge of this vital ministry was concerning for Paul. He wrote a letter of encouragement and a reminder to hold fast to his faith. Because it was the second letter Paul wrote to Timothy, we know it as 2 Timothy. Paul also wrote a letter to a man named Titus. Titus was a Greek who had, been, who had converted to Christianity through the teachings of Paul. They were soon traveling together and Titus was at the Council of Jerusalem when they agreed that Gentiles could be Christians without converting to Judaism. Titus, a Gentile Christian, would have found that council to be very important. Thankfully, it ended with him not having to be circumcised. Paul wrote a letter to Titus. It's very short, but it covers a lot of topics. What elders and pastors should do, how to organize a church, what God's grace looks like. It was almost like a goodbye letter to a good friend. Around this time, a letter was circulated amongst the Jewish believers in Rome. Today, there's a difference of opinion on who wrote it. Some possibilities are Paul, Barnabas, Apollos, or Priscilla. If Priscilla wrote it, then that would make one of the most famous books of the New Testament written by a woman. The most popular opinion is Paul, but there's really no way for us to know. However, in this letter, the Jewish believers are shown point by point how the Old Testament points to Jesus Christ. We know this book as the book of Hebrews. At the same time, two letters written by Peter are circulated amongst the churches in what is today known as Turkey. These books are 1st and 2nd Peter. In these letters, Peter explains how Christians are going to suffer. We should expect it. We have to live holy lives even though we are hated for it. 
as Christians were being rounded up and used as torches and props for plays, the Christians needed this encouragement to not give up and to keep living holy lives. Peter talks about how Jesus will return. Do not give up hope. Keep living holy lives and be ready for his return. Peter also talks about being careful to not accept false teachings and to not let the values of the society corrupt you. Shortly after writing this second letter, Peter becomes a prop for one of the plays, but we're going to talk about that in the next episode. One more letter is circulated at this time. It is written by Jesus' half-brother, Jude. It's a short letter, but it warns the church to stay away from false teachers. There's also a warning about the judgment of sin. The letter tells the church to be alert and to not fall for the traps of Satan. It's now AD 67. It's 37 years since Jesus ascended into heaven and the church was birthed. The world is in chaos. There's been famines and wars and Christians are hated. For the Christians, life would be very different from today and at the same time, very similar. Political sides you're forced to take, political leaders who hate Christians, a society that accepts sexual perversions as normal, and inside the church, false teachings and immorality. And it's about to get much, much worse. Most of the New Testament has been written. The three letters by John and the book of Revelation have not been written yet. The events in the next three years will shape the world forever. Even today, we experience unrest because of the events that happen during the next three years. And in our next episode, we're going to talk about that in an episode called Death and Destruction. I'm Loralee Siemens. Until next time, to listen to more podcasts, to read blogs, and to check out my videos, go to lauraleesiemens.com. I'll see you next time for our next episode, Death and Destruction. Destruction.